Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, good to see you, man. <laughs> good to see you. Yeah. Sorry to um, leave during like a war, the busiest yeah. time <laughs> possible. Yeah, I expected to miss some news. I did not expect to uh, literally come back to a world that is changed forever. Yeah. Well, I don't think you have to. You don't have to apologize to anybody. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just say that that'll be my that'll be my uh, my my core point. Core point. Don't worry about it. But it is like, man. This does make you kind of think about how we're talking, we were talking about this on, on Pots of America. Like things are just really fragile in the world everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think that they've felt fragile for a while, right? I mean, and, and leaders really matter. Yeah. It's been a theme on the show for years now of how fragile things are. And something like this was going to happen. You know, um, this was always one of the flashpoints that was out there, right? And it was actually always the most active flashpoint. And so if there was going to be a conflagration around, authoritarianism and aggression, you know, it, it was going to be here. Yeah. And I guess like there was an annexation of Kashmir and it just didn't lead to a war and we all should be pretty happy for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another flashpoint. You know, <laughs> they're, they're, people should remember there's some other ones out there and uh, don't ever assume that they'll just work themselves yeah, out. Yeah. That's the thing you realize in government, like there's dogs that aren't barking and you're like very grateful for, for that. A huge part of working in government is preventing things from getting even worse. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, so today, obviously, we are going to focus on Ukraine again. We're going to sort of update everybody on the major events since the last episode, including the military campaign, the sanctions, the strong response from Europe, the weak response from some other countries how things could get worse, what the private sector and what sports leagues are doing to show global solidarity. And then you'll hear my interview with Katsenia Putiatina. She's a 29-year-old from Odessa, Ukraine, uh, who is now one of the more than 660,000 and counting refugees who've been forced to flee the country. Uh, so definitely stick around for that because, you know, I think it's pretty hard to sit where we sit and imagine what it's like to have to make a call of, to, like, maybe leave your house forever. Yeah, yeah, I... I uh... You know, you don't know if you're ever going to be able to get back. Yeah, I mean, that's the, literally. And talking to people who've been refugees, the, the most wrenching thing is that sense of, like, imagine walking out of your house, leaving all your stuff and maybe even some family or friends behind and never knowing if you'll be back there. Literally never know if you'll see your house again. Never yeah. know if you'll see your, your friend down the street, your cousin, yeah. your cat, your dog. I mean, it's just heart-wrenching stuff. And certainly never going to see your city look the same as it once did no. if you're from no. Kiev or Kharkiv or one of these places. Yep. Or Odessa, for that matter. Right. Um, okay, so we'll start with this just a quick roundup of major events. Ben, if you have anything to add, uh, please do. And then I figured we would just sort of go through all of these yeah. sort of one by one in, in major buckets later. So the international community has responded significantly since Friday when you guys talked with major sanctions that targeted Putin uh, himself, Russia's central bank, the U.S. and Europe also moved to restrict Russia's access to the swift global financial system that allows banks to communicate a bunch of European countries reversed course uh, and stopped being reticent to sanction Russia and agreed not only to sanction them, but to provide Ukraine with arms. 
uh, after initially deploying smaller groups of forces, the Russians are steadily moving larger and larger groups of troops into Ukraine. There's reports of a 40-mile, 40-mile convoy of Russian military vehicles headed towards the capital. Belarus and Chechnya have deployed forces in support of Russia. That's very scary. Putin put his nuclear forces on high alert. I guess it goes without saying that that's pretty scary. Uh, talks between the Russians and Ukrainians seemingly failed. Biden talked to Zelensky today for about a half an hour. And then, as I mentioned at the top, 660,000 Ukrainians, according to the UN, have fled the country in the last few days and become refugees. Sadly, between now and when we post this episode, that number will probably be up significantly. So again, we'll go through these all later, but any major events I missed that you wanted to add or just like big things that stuck out of you? Um, no, I mean, I think I think you you pretty much nailed it. I mean, there's, there's plenty to unpack <laughs> within that. I saw Zelensky gave an interview after that call with Biden. Oh, really? And I thought just briefly the noteworthy thing he said was essentially, we're going to resist, but we can't defeat Russia by ourselves, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's been present in all of his messaging, but I mean, it was, you know, this is a, a guy very in touch with reality. Yeah. You know? Ben, I mean, just an aside before we get to the other stuff, like, Zelensky has said that they're hunting him, the Russians. The yeah. Russians said basically they want regime change. How do you think he's like making phone calls, zooming into events, doing media hits safely? I mean, he's clearly assuming a degree of risk, you know, yeah. um, because you can take operational security steps and we've all seen him appearing in what appears to be, you know, a basement somewhere. Um, but you know, there's only so much you can do um, when things shift to kind of more indiscriminate use of violence and air power and potential Russian special forces moving into the city. So I do think, you know, and it feels almost wrong to even talk about it, you know, uh, but I, I do think that one of the principal things to bear in mind in the coming days is what happens to Zelensky. Yeah, I know. I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah. So let, let's start with that, the military situation, because I, I think it's there's a sobering conversation to be had, which is that a lot of military experts, I'm not one, but I've read a bunch, think that the, the Russians' sort of tactical strategy over the first few days was quite flawed. The Russians basically raced a small number of military units to the capital. They seemingly wanted to scare the hell out of everybody, get them to lay down arms, maybe take out Zelensky, and basically get Ukraine to surrender before the war even started and the West could respond. They've also seemingly taken steps to limit civilian casualties. They have not been bombing from the air as much as you might expect or using helicopters as much as you'd expect especially if you contrast what we've seen in Ukraine with the tactics Russia has used in Syria and Chechnya. Presumably, that's because if you want to decapitate and install a puppet regime and control Ukraine that way, you want to sort of keep some support from the people. Um, in both cases, it seems clear that Russia drastically underestimated the Ukrainian resistance. But I think listeners should just know, like, the scary part comes next. Most of the Russian military has not been involved in the fighting. They will be soon. We saw overnight more bombing in cities. So like these little vignettes on social media about Ukrainian victories, they're inspiring and they're helping win the information war, but they're probably not representative. I mean, Ben, what do you make of the fighting so far? And like, are there things you're seeing that really worry you about what might come next? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a military expert. Um, I do have experience, unfortunately, though, dealing with Putin's use of politics uh, and the military together and his use of information. And I think it's fairly clear to deduce from the last five days that he was hoping for a best case scenario in mm -hmm. which 
uh, a relatively limited amount of military force coupled with a lot of intimidation could essentially yield a political outcome in which you saw a rapid collapse of the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian government leave the country in a way that created a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, And his preferred option was clearly to install some pro-Russian puppet government, you know, populated by Ukrainian corrupt types who have long ties to Russian security forces. There are guys like that around Kyiv. And he also, I think, wanted to avoid the kind of indiscriminate mass civilian casualties, in part because that could do a couple of things. It it might forestall the most severe sanctions. Um, And frankly, I think the Russian people who he's trying to kind of keep this war from, I think he appreciates that, you know, there's no uh, way to sugarcoat this. You know, they may feel differently about watching their military massacre their fellow Slavs and even ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in Ukraine than they did about Syria, Mm -hmm. which probably felt very distant from them. Um, And clearly he failed on all accounts. Uh, You know, Zelensky and the Ukrainian people showed a lot more resolve. The West principally, but many other countries moved very quickly to the more severe sanctions. And he just was not going to be able to achieve his objectives with that play. And unfortunately, I think what that most likely means is he's going to pivot to more indiscriminate use of violence to achieve his ends. But even then, he's in a bit of a box, Tommy, because would you sign up to be the leader of the Russian puppet government in Kiev? Oh, my Kiev? God, no. Um, that person is not going to last That's in that That's a dangerous job. job. I mean, and, and, and so the idea that Russia could install a, a government and pull out seems impossible. The Ukrainians would overthrow that government. Um, And so in addition to the more indiscriminate use of violence, I don't see how he accomplishes his objectives of essentially erasing Ukraine as a a sovereign and independent state absent a really open-ended Russian military presence. Yeah. I mean, I saw one military expert suggest it could take like 800,000 Russian troops to really occupy Ukraine in the way you'd want to, given like sort of counterinsurgency strategy. You've got open borders to NATO countries. You've got sea borders where we can get weapons in there. Like if this, holding on to Ukraine, if there's a real deal insurgency, is not going to be easy for Vladimir Putin. Yeah. I, I mean, I think nothing about, as you said, like you can overread the really inspiring stuff that some of us, uh, I'm sure, have been consuming on social media about Ukrainian resistance. Um, but you can also underread it uh, because yeah. if you think about it this way, yes, Russia can overwhelm that resistance with violence. But that type of resistance suggests a people uh, of 44 million people, uh, even with refugee flows, you're still talking 40 million people um, who appear committed to resist over the long haul, in which case they'll never really have control over Ukraine as the United States has learned in fighting insurgencies in places like Iraq and Afghanistan that, you know, you know, a smaller country. And and the only caveat to that is, you know, for all of America's flaws and failings, which we've talked about, we don't just deliberately, you know, do to a city what he did to say Grozny, you know. Um, and so that's the danger I see is just just violence begetting violence. Yeah, just flattening cities. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about how things could get worse, then we'll get to the sanctions. So some things that really worry me, uh, we talked about the tactical mistakes, how they seem to avoid civilian casualties. 
that all goes out the window, right? If the, you decide to lead siege on a city like Kiev or use you know, a weapon like a thermobaric bomb or like, God forbid, a tactical nuclear weapon, although I, that's, I don't, yeah, I, I react. I'm not, I'm not, my DEFCON level is not. It's <laughs> not a three, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, two or three. Um, on top of that, you, you these stories of restraint about, you know, young Russian soldiers who are mostly conscripted, mm-hmm. who don't really know where they are and don't want to kill Ukrainian civilians. I don't think we see that same kind of restraint from the Wagner Group, which is a private, yeah. private militia force like Blackwater, uh, the Russian version of Blackwater. I don't think you see that from Chechnyan soldiers who are famous for their brutality and human rights abuses. Belarus is sending in troops. I, I don't know what those guys are like. And then more importantly, Ben, like what is the diplomatic off-ramp? You know, I mean, the U.S. is evacuating the embassy in Moscow, wisely, I believe. But, like, we're severing ties. Um, There were these brief talks this week between the Ukrainian defense minister and some Russian officials. Nothing came of it. But, I mean, are are you seeing anything or do you hope that there's happening behind the scenes some sort of diplomacy or some sort of creative thinking about, like, how do we let Putin save face here and climb down? Or, Or do you think that option even exists? I don't see it. You know, I just could be honest. Uh, I wish I did. I hope I'm wrong. Oh, my God. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but the problem here is that, you know, this is what's so dangerous about war. When you start a war, already, you know, gaps between adversaries can widen and harden. And essentially, Zelensky's um, bottom line, which is clearly shared by the overwhelming majority of his people, is he can't agree to something that surrenders Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, now, that's not just NATO. That's like, is he going to have to accept the recognition of these fake republics in Donetsk and Luhansk? Is mm-hmm. he going to have to um, accept you know, the annexation of Crimea? Is he going to have to accept some Russian military presence in his country? These are not things that I can see Zelensky agreeing to or any Ukrainian leader agreeing to a beyond one that the Russians essentially try to install. Um, and can Putin accept an outcome that is short of essentially controlling Ukraine? Yeah. You know, can he accept, you know, some pledge of NATO neutrality alone as, as, as what he accomplished? He, nothing about him suggests that that's um, his mindset. Uh, and so, you know, you want, you hope that those talks can yield, you know, ceasefire for time and a window to, to just talk more. But as Zelensky himself has pointed out, Russia has been escalating its bombing during the talks. Um, you know, in the past, Russia has agreed to ceasefires um, and just completely ignored them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Syria comes to mind. Um, and and so there's not a ton of optimism. And you're right. The These forces, you know, the, the, among the hierarchy of this, because this is something to watch, right? The, the the Russian conscript 18-year-old kid who's not sure why he's there, that's a real problem for them, right? That is something to watch. The Belarus military, like, is not a particularly good military, and, and those guys probably have no idea why the hell they're there, right? Yeah. On the other hand, uh, yeah, the Wagner Group uh, has been fighting in places like Libya and places like yeah. Syria and eastern Ukraine. They are ruthless. They are mercenaries. Um the uh, Chechens, you know, Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, who's the Chechen leader, who we may, you know, unfortunately, you know, have to learn more about. Yeah, sociopath. Just brutal tip of the spear for Putin's repression in Chechnya. Um, a lot of rumors that 
He's been involved in things like, you know, the assassination of the father of one of our recent guests, Zhan uh, Nemshova. Um, so there's just going to be this kind of weird hybrid of different types of, of violence um, uh, in Ukraine. And unfortunately, you know, you can see uh, Putin wanting to lean more on the more, you know, uh, b- brutal of those those actors. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so there's been this flurry of sanctions. So the U.S. sanctioned Putin himself, uh, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, a bunch of cronies and oligarchs around Putin. The U.S. and Europe moved to cut off uh, some Russian banks from accessing SWIFT, which is that messaging service that lets banks communicate. And sanctions are targeting Russia's central bank, which had $640 billion with a B uh, in foreign exchange reserves as of February 18th. But the, the key thing to know is that that money, those reserves, they weren't like sitting in a vault in Moscow. Mostly they were held electronically in Western banks. And now Putin can't access that money. Um, in response, we saw the Russian central bank move to double interest rates to 20% to try to avoid inflation and runs on banks. So these are like major economic steps that happen incredibly quickly. And you know, last week, Ben, I, I caught a bit of Biden's press conference where he said it could take months for sanctions to really bite. But it seems like between those comments he made on like Wednesday or Thursday of last week, and now Western countries decided to push a whole lot more chips into the table than I ever would have expected them to do. And I do think like the honest way to describe this is economic warfare. I mean, we are trying to destroy the Russian economy, essentially, or in effect, that's what we're doing. And the Russian stock market cratered, Russia's currency lost a big chunk of value. It's like, I, I don't know how this plays out, but again, like... Putin could interpret this in a lot of different ways. What do you think the most impactful move in terms of sanctions has been? And are there more steps you think yeah. that can be taken to escalate? So there's no question that the central bank is the most impactful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, people who've been listening over the last few weeks may have heard me reference repeatedly Putin's rainy day fund over of over six hundred billion dollars. I was talking about the central bank. You yeah. know? And and I think in part, you know, there was a, a belief that that would be a very difficult sanction for Western governments to move to right away, but they did um, for reasons we can talk about in a bit with Europe. Um, so this is uncharted territory. Like to give you a sense of it, the only time that that this has really been done, the combination of, of a, a swift sanction and a central bank sanction is Iran. Um, you know, after 2010, the entire economy of Iran was less than that 620 billion. Mm-hmm. It was in like the 500 billions. Like. This has never been tried before. And so I don't think we fully know and appreciate what the ramifications of this are going to be for the Russian economy, for the global economy. It's just a different scale. Um, And there's no question it's going to make it harder for Russia to access money, Um, never mind the isolation, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, And it's going to impact ordinary Russians as prices rise and and goods become scarce. Um, In terms of where this could go, I think this is a really important thing for people to think about. The one thing that hasn't been done yet are energy sanctions, Um, sanctions on the Russian export of of oil and gas. If you've seen reporting about how there's some exceptions in the SWIFT system uh, cutoff, um, what those exceptions are too is the capacity to facilitate payments for Russian energy. So the Europeans are still buying a a, a big chunk of gas, for instance, from Russia on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. And they're creating exceptions to be able to facilitate those payments. Um, those sanctions would hurt us by far the most. Um, and there's even an argument uh, to to make that Russia could just try to seek other 
buyers for their oil and gas. Now, Chinese. That's or... not as straightforward as it sounds either, because oil is easy to move around because it's in barrels, but like gas depends on transport systems, yeah, pipelines, pipelines etc. Yeah. However, the scenarios you and I have talked about already on this program, like uh, God forbid anything happens to Zelensky or the flattening of cities, we've already seen public opinion move the needle very quickly on what uh, leaders are prepared to do. It's hard to see how this doesn't lead to energy sanctions um, or at least uh, pressure for those energy sanctions, which would that would kind of fully cement the kind of cutoff between mm-hmm. the Russian economy and at least the kind of Western economy and and really send the Russian economy into you know a really substantial tumultuous period. Yeah, and frankly, probably the economies of a lot of countries around Russia. I mean, if you're a if you're a lower class, middle class person in Poland, you need to pay to heat your house. You know, yeah. it's cold as hell and you yeah. need some Russian gas to do it and it's going to be difficult. I mean, I just can't imagine being an average Russian this morning, waking up and trying to use like Apple Pay at the Metro and like, yeah. you just can't. Or go to the ATM, you can't take money. No out, money out. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, unbelievable. Yeah. The, the one sort of caveat to that, the reserves is there's like 100, 120 billion of that money in gold. Yeah. So I guess you, know, you could sell that, but there was some article about like, okay, so you want to sell all the gold? You load up an entire train full of gold. You take it all the way across Siberia yeah. to China to sell it to them at some discount because she is going to screw you on the deal. She didn't paying, not she a woman. Um, and so, like, that's not an easy solution either. It's not. I mean, you're going to see all kinds of creative things. You know, God knows crypto is going to enter into this. But, uh, you know, Max Seddon was on the last show, and he made this interesting point about China that, their backfilling of the sanctions is going to do some interesting things to the power dynamic because just take export controls. Like we're denying all these inputs, semiconductors, high-tech stuff for their economy. That means they're just going to turn to the Chinese to completely backfill all that stuff. And suddenly Russia could be wired with Huawei. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, so so uh, the Chinese can backfill some of this. They can't cushion the whole blow. But the the reality, if China starts buying discounted oil and starts supplying all the tech, China's going to, you know, gain an enormous foothold in Russia. Yeah. By the way, a reason why a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would be challenging for the world, challenging for everybody, because boy, if they took out all the semiconductor infrastructure, we would all go from online uh, supercomputing planet to the dark ages. (laughs) Good luck with that that computer in your car. uh, Yeah. Good luck with that Tesla. Um, So, you know, like we were talking about, the, the European response has been amazing, shockingly tough. You yeah. know, Finland might move to join NATO. They were famously sort of playing this middle ground and seen as like yeah. keeping close to both sides. Germany went from only supplying Ukraine with helmets and, and non-lethal gear to announcing that they will send thousands of anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine. On top of that, Germany announced that they're basically doubling their defense spending. Yeah. So obviously, like the perceived threat to Europe from Russia has changed drastically in the last few weeks. And you know, on some level, sure, that's good. On another level, like a more militarized Germany and Europe is yeah. historically bad. So, you know, it's a little worrisome. Um, Zelensky is pushing Ukraine to join the European Union. That's not going to happen anytime soon, I don't think. So, again, like Europe has done a lot here. Um, there have been some countries that have not joined in the condemnation of Russia. The Chinese have only offered equivocal yeah. statements. India abstained from a United Nations vote to condemn the invasion. I imagine that's because they buy Russian arms, they have relations with yeah. Russia, but also, you know, they, again, they just annexed Kashmir. So slightly awkward for them. Brazil didn't condemn Russia because 
Bolsonaro's a little wannabe Putin yeah. showed. Um, Israel's been quiet, which could be partly because they need Russia to let them do stuff in Syria, but also some think that they are trying to preserve some sort of flexibility to mediate between the two sides. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure about that. Any big takeaways from you or surprises from Europe? And then on the counterpoint, like, do you think Putin stitching together this sort of like coalition of the shitty is is meaningful to him or can help him evade sanctions? I think that the, um, I, look, I think this Europe point is really worth people reacting to. Um, this is an enormous shift in European Union identity and European identity. Um, to give people a sense of it, when we were trying to impose sanctions on, on Russia after the annexation of Crimea, it was like pins and needles to drag the Europeans to you know, sanctions on some oligarchs and banks and mm -hmm. sectors of the Russian economy. Um, and and now Europe, you know, it was the one, you know, that kind of sped past the U.S. I, I'm sure with the U.S., you know, urging too, though, but to do these more severe sanctions. And it feels like, you know, the, the conversation for the last decade as the world descended in the direction of this nationalist authoritarianism that we always talk about, has been about why doesn't Europe care more about its identity uh, around democratic values? Why doesn't it, you know, do more on behalf of a kind of values and principles-based foreign policy? Why is collective action among the Europeans so difficult and painstaking? And it's like that all changed overnight. Yeah. And to me, the, the, there's a hopeful thing um, in this. It's that that European identity around democracy and and to use a word that has gone out of style, freedom, you know, has been awoken, you know, that kind of dormant vein underneath the European uh, political life has clearly been awoken by not just leaders, but by the public. I mean, the hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in Europe and, and you know, these leaders are responding to that um, sense of, of, of European solidarity. And, you know, I think Europeans look at Kiev and they think more so than Americans, that could be my capital city, right. you know. Um, and... And the steps that are being taken are dramatic. I mean, Germany, not just canceling Nord Stream 2 pipeline, but doubling its defense spending and allowing for, as one of the biggest uh, arms exporters uh, in Europe, allowing for all manner of arms to be transferred to the Ukrainians. Yeah, so, so the, this is a good point because the Germans sell arms to the Dutch. Previously, they wouldn't let them export them to Ukrainians. Yeah. Now they can. Yeah, I mean, That's and, you know, the, the Brits, you know, who had been cautious about going after the kleptocrats in London and, and you know, David Lammy, our, our friend, was really beating uh, Boris Johnson over the head, well, then they got there, right? And you can go on down the line. Even the European Union stuff, it, it may be hard for Ukraine to formally become an EU member, but I think they are signaling like, you know, and as the European Parliament did, no, no, this, we see you as a member of the European Union, essentially, even if it obviously is hard to implement in the current context. Um, and so I think it's positive that finally, like, and I think there's a lot of, there was a lot of pent up frustration with Putin, with corruption, with the kind of far right, you know, I, I, it felt like all of a sudden, I think Zelensky did, did this. I think yeah. when a, a guy stands up to a bully and, and Zelensky has a lot more to lose than any of those European leaders and the Ukrainians in the streets have a lot more to lose than people in European cities. And when they don't look afraid, um, I think it shook them out of complacency. Now, did you, did you see that he apparently dialed into some EU call? Yeah. I think it was like a video it was conference. A, a European Parliament session. And like yeah. gave a five minute speech that left them in tears and was like, this might be the last time you see me. Yeah. And the interpreter was crying while delivering the speech. It's <laughs> one of the most dramatic speeches yeah. I've ever seen. And Zelensky, this is one of those narratives that is true, I think. I think he has, he's the first leader in 
memory to really stand up to one of these bullies and throw a punch back. And and the fact that he's smaller in, in every way, shape, or form yeah. only enhances it. You know, and the fact that he, you know, in that video where he's like, I'm here, you know, the head of the presidential administration is here. We are here. And and it looks like he's out among the people. He's not at some EU session. You know, he's not behind a podium. Or a giant table. Yes, or at a like giant Putin. table. Like, it's like everyone around the world saw that and was like, well, this guy's not afraid. What are we afraid of these fucking right. oligarchs for? What right. are we afraid? Now, the, you're right, to caution, there's also something else that might have been tapped in the European psyche, which is this kind of dormant, martial, you know, militaristic vibe, right? Uh, and, and wars in Europe, you know... Um, Historically bad. Yeah, historically bad. <laughs> I mean, I, I there, you know, there's been, well, yeah, let's just leave it at that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is amazing. Like Ukraine said that they're going to get 70 fighter jets from the EU. Most of them are MiG-29s and, and uh, other Russian-made jets. And like, look, I'll be honest, consider me a little skeptical that you can kind of just like hand off a fighter jet and like really integrate it in the most effective way. Like I think maybe it would be make more sense to give them like tons of this. Yeah, and Poland has kind of backtracked a little on okay. this. Okay, yeah, but yeah. I mean, the symbolism of a MiG fighter jet attacking Russian forces is wild. Also, I don't know if you saw this, but um, look, I, yeah, I, I sort of, you know, look, I, a cynical in, in interpretation of why uh, Israel won't oh, condemn yes. the Sorry. Russians is yeah. well-founded, yeah. but Bibi Netanyahu went to the Knesset. Yeah. And he said, now is not the time for Israel to talk about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And then he went on to accuse the current Israeli government, Naftali Bennett and Gary Lapid, of surrendering to the Biden administration on Iran. So like every time you think this guy has found a bottom, it gets no, worse. No, look, Israel has been totally absent. And, and Netanyahu's gone, but he he helped reorient this kind of cozy relationship with Putin. Um, you know, we've talked about the fact that, you know, Black Cube is, uh, <laughs> spying on me has been, uh, has been helpful to Putin and this spyware that they sell to this kind of, uh, autocratic, uh, uh, club. Amazing um, New York Times report on this over the weekend, Yeah, includes the a lot of the countries that you mentioned. They're sitting this one out. I mean, I look at, and I think what we're seeing is the revitalization of an idea of a quote unquote free world that is doing certain things. Then you have these countries that are kind of on the margins of that, that are hedging because they are so deeply invested in global autocracy or kleptocracy. So in that category, I put like the UAE. Yep. Um, I saw Mohammed bin Zayed, Washington's favorite despot, um, did a phone call with Putin today. Um, and the Russians kind of read out how much MBZ welcomed, you know, Russian yeah. steps to protect its security. Um, well, the UAE is neck deep in, in kleptocracy. You know, you think, where is some of that Russian oligarch wealth? Uh, take a look at Abu Dhabi and Dubai, right, for right, instance, right? right? Um, never mind the kind of belief that democracy itself is threatening. That's something that's been ingrained in, in the way the UAE looks at the world. India buys a lot of, yeah, a lot of deep defense relationship um, with Russia, um, increasing tolerance for, you know, um, undemocratic behaviors at home and abroad. Um, Bolsonaro in the global league of creeps, you know, um, and Israel, very complicated one because they've, they've kind of developed this relationship with Russia that they, they have not yet wanted to place their relationship with the U S and, and democracies above that relationship. They've clearly wanted to kind of duck this thing. And when they have spoken out, it's been Lapid, who's like the more Western facing member of that coalition, whereas Bennett is the guy who's more you know, in the autocratic facing side of that coalition. So I think what we've seen thus far is kind of a sorting of the world back into kind of almost Cold War camps. Japan 
very forceful on behalf of sanctions, for yeah, instance. Amazing. Um, and diplomatic support from countries, not just like South Korea, but even Singapore, which yeah. isn't a democracy, but it has generally kind of aligned with democracies and is probably worried about China. Taiwan, very vocal in its support. Sent a bunch Ukraine. of, I think, medical support. Sent a bunch of stuff. Supplies, like yeah. Taiwan, very outspoken. So it's very interesting to watch. You know, you've got the Russian camp, which is basically, you know, Russia and, the, you know, Belarus and the vassal states, but then like China. Then you've got the democratic camp, and then you've got these kind of like people like the UAE just keeping their head down. Right, yeah. And Russia's got some sort of randoms in like Central America or, or Africa that they give a lot of money to that yeah. I think abstained as well. Or that the Wagner Group, you know, helps yeah. out. Yeah, right, right, or might topple. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Also an interesting response from the business community. So we had Google and Facebook banning Russian state media from selling ads. Telegram threatened to shut down channels that were spreading disinformation. Twitter is now labeling posts affiliated with Russian state media. Uh, on the more sort of like media, you know, Disney is, isn't going to show films in Russia. Sony suspended some premieres of films in Russia. And then on the oil and gas front, BP announced it would sell its nearly 20% stake in Rosneft, which is a state-controlled, Russian state-controlled oil company. Shell said it would exit its joint venture with Gazprom the massive Russian natural gas company. Hopefully others like Exxon will follow suit. I don't think these companies necessarily deserve a, a profile in courage, especially the, the energy companies. And I don't know how much this is just the risk of sanctions kind of forcing their hands. But it does, again, speak to this problem for Putin insofar as if he was trying to hide this war from the yeah. Russian people, that is now impossible. The question, Ben, to you and me, it's like, okay, if you're getting really hurt economically, if you can't travel abroad if you can't watch Frozen 7 with your yeah. kid, how do we make sure they blame Putin and not the West? That's the hard one, right? I mean, I, 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 I like, as someone who doesn't usually like, you know, sanctions, you know, fought really hard to try to lift the Cuba embargo. And this is different. I mean, like, this is, the, they're in the middle of like a war. Uh, and, and I think that it ties with what I was saying to Europe, about Europe, like, We've, you know, highlighted in the past, you know, uh, companies that constantly put profit over values, you know, it's below my line, you know, on the Uyghur mm -hmm. genocide, yes, et cetera. Yes, my favorite billionaire. And there's something kind of 
both refreshing and worrying in seeing uh, this scale of action. What's refreshing is that whether it's sanctions or whether it's responding to kind of global public opinion, there is a sense of like, we are companies that are rooted in democracies and therefore we have no choice but to kind of go with the democratic world on this thing. Maersk not delivering, you know, the shipping container company, you know, not delivering goods to Russia. Um, but what it's going to precipitate is this kind of sorting out, right? I mean, Google, YouTube, long term, I think, are not going to be back in Russia. Yeah. And we, we should have said this about sanctions earlier. Like, once you go down this road, when do you resume operations, right? right? If Russia is not going to accept anything less than the subjugation of Ukraine, we got to think these sanctions are kind of quasi-permanent and that these companies pulling out is kind of quasi-permanent. And so then, again, as I was saying with China, like, what's going to replace Google and YouTube and all these things is probably going to be like Chinese tech, you know, Chinese social media, mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe Chinese pop culture will suddenly take off in Russia. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And, and I do think that the Russian people who are ultimately um, principal audiences, because one of the things we haven't said out loud is that like, you know, we seem like we're going to be in some state of conflict with Russia so long as Putin is the leader there. Yes, there's a, there's a regime change element to this. Yeah. It's not overt. It's not kill him. But let's be honest, like what Alexei Navalny is doing, right? He's releasing videos saying things like, in a few years, today's children will ask their parents, mommy, daddy, what were you doing when Putin started the war? You didn't yeah. support it. Did you? Please tell me you didn't. Like, like, That's the opportunity that we will see if the Russian people try to seize. Yeah. And look, people should keep in mind, like, I, I don't want to like suggest any of this is likely, right? Um, but there's like popular opinion whether that um, rises up in Russia. There's the oligarchs that frankly, like we should be going after for a lot of good reasons, but like, I don't know that Putin is going to like listen to or be ousted by oligarchs. Mm -hmm. There's like Russian generals though, you know? Right, there's and dudes with guns. There's, and, and the question is, is this getting so risky like, I don't think it's likely in the near term, but like things in Russian history have sometimes changed very fast, you know? Now, there's the other side of that coin, though, like you said, where Putin will try to, to, to stoke all that popular anger and direct it against the West. One thing makes me uncomfortable, for instance, Tommy, is these videos of like Russians who are captured that are being publicized and put on social media. I see what the strategy is. It's like show the Russians the cost of this war and what's really happening. But I, I, you know, that can cut both ways. Do Russians like seeing that, you know, um, and, and we don't know. It's early stages here. I think that the, the, the imperative, though, is to get as much information in Russia as possible, because the more Russians are forced to look at Russian casualties, the destruction of, of, of Ukraine and a country of fellow Slavs, the harder it is for Putin to do that redirection. So a lot of thoughts can have to be given about how do you force information into Russia some of this could be because Russians have family members in Ukraine and they're just going to hear about what's happening. Some of this is going to be on platforms like Telegram, right, where there's huge Russian. Uh, right. Well, look, they can all go to nytimes.com. You know, it's not China. It's not yeah. like totally firewall. It's just a question of whether it gets there. Who yeah. Knows? And we or whether those things start to go away, whether Russia yeah. starts to look more like China. Now, it's hard. It took China like a long time to build what's called the Great Firewall that just keeps information out. Russia doesn't have that right now. No, so they're no. counting more on like intimidation. Um, don't, you know, don't go there. Don't talk about it. Don't share stuff on social media. Then, then, then real, like a real kind of dome of, yeah. you know. Remember uh, Rex Tillerson's heroic work getting uh, Exxon into Russia? That looks a little differently yeah, yeah. now. Yeah. The, it was weirdly held up as like a credential. It was like a big thing. Oh, he got a medal yeah, from yeah, Putin. Yeah. Like, great, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, one thing. Um, yeah. Those videos are weird to me because you're like, is this under duress? I have no idea. 
um, the the sort of Russian yeah. captives calling their moms or whatever. Yeah. Then the other sort of videos that I really don't want to see any more of is like videos of Turkish drones blowing up Russian troops because again, those are fucking human beings and they're probably twenty year old kids who think they're in a training mission in Belarus and don't know what's going on, you know? And like, all of this is awful and it's not a game. Yeah. I understand what, what the Ukrainians are doing. They, I get what they're doing. They want to, they like want to. the resistance Twitter in, in, exactly. in America. Let's well, all just like, come on. That's the gap, right? Yeah. So the Ukrainians are trying to like tell each other, we can stand up to these guys. Look what our heroic yeah. military is And it's is working. Doing. We actually can like mount a fight here. So you should fight. Um, which is a normal impulse in a war. The reality is this is a European war because to be clear, there have been wars in Iraq and Syria and Yemen and social media age and other places. But let's face it, this is a European war which we've never seen on social media before. Um, and so this is all new terrain. And you're right. It's it's one thing for the Ukrainians to want to buck each other up. It's another thing for like, you know, Twitter warriors to be and some of these videos are unverified. I mean, I just caution people. Yeah. I mean, you've seen this, like, you don't know what, if it's coming from, and we tried to identify in the show, like people, you know, like Christopher Miller, like I trust what's on that guy's feed, you know, like, but like, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Brooklyn resistance dad. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Tweeting, yeah. you know, yeah. Maverick and Goose taking yeah. out a MIG, like it's probably not real. Yeah, nice. exactly. <laughs> you said it better than I could. Um, but like the, the place you're seeing like really cool, amazing global solidarity is, well, one in these protests that you mentioned earlier, which are just like, you know, kind of bring tears to your eyes, but then sports. Yeah. Um, and some examples of sports showing solidarity for Ukraine and, and pushing back on Russia. So FIFA blocked Russia from the World Cup. That's a huge deal. The International Ice Hockey Federation says Russian and Belarusian teams are banned from competition and Russia can't be part of the Euro hockey tour, yeah. <laughs> whatever the fuck that is. Um, the NHL, the National Hockey League, suspended deals with Russia. UEFA, which is another uh, soccer federation like FIFA, moved the Champions League final from Russia to France, and they ended a 50 million, 50 million sponsorship deal with Gazprom. So that's like putting real money in your mouth is. The International Olympic Committee, those soulless, yeah, yeah, yeah. corrupt ghouls. Profiles and courage. Yeah, recommended barring Russian and Belarusian athletes from events. Tennis is complicated. There's too many organizations, but they're doing some good stuff there. Uh, and then a Russian oligarch named Roman Abramovich, who owns Chelsea, a, a soccer club in the Premier League that's badass. Nicknamed Putin's Wallet. Putin's wallet, yep, um, handed his control of the club to a foundation. Seemingly, he look, he's trying to he's trying to shield these assets in any way he can before yeah. they get sanctions, and so we'll see what happens there. But um, again, some of the stuff, like you said, like probably should have happened a while ago for different reasons. Um, totally justified, fully support it. But all of these things are just going to make life kind of suck more for your average Russian. I like these, though. I um, like them, too. Yeah. I and, like them, too. And, and, he, and, and I think people, and first of all, let's be clear, FIFA and the IOC, above all, have been the worst actors when it comes to Putin. So the, corrupt. These guys are yes. so fucking corrupt. But, like, the reality is Putin, you know, pay attention to what he cares about. Um, he hosted the Olympics and the World Cup. Now, he got that through total corruption, you know, like, just just bags of cash bags of to cash, the IOC and to FIFA. Um, but that's, it matters to him. Like it, it, it's, you know, this kind of stature of Russia and like international sports has always been very important to Putin personally. Um, so to me, I think this is about Putin personally, like that, that your capacity to use, um, you know, these, these corrupt sporting bodies uh, to, to elevate your own stature and to make the Russian people feel like, you know, you're less isolated than you are. 
Like this is something the Russians are going to notice, you know, and um, and these are not bodies, by the way, that pick on Russia. You know, no. it's, it's you know, it's not like yeah. this is the U.S. This is, you know, these are bodies that have tolerated Russian corruption. Often include Russians, yeah. And by the way, we should just quick detour on, uh, you know, Abramovitz, like the. First of all, these oligarchs use these teams to, to wash money. To it's all sports money. washing. Same with yeah. the Saudis, same yeah. with the, you know. So they overpay for clubs like Chelsea with, like, because they basically want to take assets and wash them into legitimate um, assets like soccer clubs. And that shit has to stop. And, um, and, and, and this is the point about sanctions enforcement. You know, you don't just flip a switch and the oligarchs all lose their money. You know, <laughs> these guys have money in other people's names and you, other assets. You, uh, Rose was saying to love it before the show. It's like, yeah, it doesn't say like Roman Abramovich, comma, uh, oligarch on yeah, these taxes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Is that, is that some account with a bunch of like U.S. stocks? It, you know, it, it's real estate. It's like hidden money. It's like it's shit that's hard to get at. It's like soccer clubs too. And and, and so these task forces that you hear about the U.S. and EU standing, these, these task forces have some work to do yeah, to get the, really the oligarch money. Do you see the dude? Some like technician on an oligarch's boat tried to sink the thing. Uh, that was uh, that I was there for that guy. I, I was that. I w- that was a that was a hard like RT for I, me. You know, like, well, I think we all learned about it from the, not, the uh, Occupy Russia Democrats today. RT. If you agree, <laughs> yeah, 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 RT. Exactly. If you support the mechanic, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's just so funny. Did also did you see that anonymous the the sort of cyber group yeah. launched these attacks yeah. on Russia? Like I don't know if that matters, but like pretty cool. I think we are in this kind of space that we haven't really. This came. This happened a bit in Syria and. But like the people just looking for a way to be involved, you know, like whether it's anonymous going after Any Russian networks, whether it's, you know, people trying to sink oligarch yachts. I think we I saw see GoFundMe for weapons for the, the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainians yeah. literally set up a GoFundMe. Yeah, you know? the Ukrainians set up. So I, I think we're in like a new, I think that's going to be, you, you hit hazard assessing and be interesting because I don't want to make it sound like right, it's fun. No. But like, it is going to be interesting to see how this kind of impulse that is clearly just pent up in people to do something, which again, I think is is above all about the people of Ukraine. I think it's just, it really is also about like, just let's fucking take a swing at these people. Like they, they because it, we feel the encroachment of this, Putin is at the vanguard of so much that's wrong in the world. Like, uh, and this is where the whataboutism has to, to fade away a little bit. You know, um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be self-critical. We should. But this guy is like trying to drag us into like a, like a hell, you know, yeah. of a cesspool of corruption and autocracy and violence. And and this impulse that people have to do shit is is going to continue to play out. Um, I hope, by the way, it doesn't play out, for instance, in discrimination or attacks against like Russians and other yes, countries. Yes, that, that would be awful. I'm all for going after the oligarchs and their money and sinking their yachts. Let's not. Uh, but like, no you know, violence. the Russian yes. people need to be separated from Putin in our and how we think about this. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I agree with you. Whataboutism is, is often useless. I, I, of course, do note the different way that supporting the Ukrainian resistance is being treated as opposed to, let's say, I tried to send material support to yeah. Palestinians or to Yemeni, Syrian resistance, yeah, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. there's, there's That's race, a fair, there's it's a fair religion. Point. It's, it's a very fair it's a point. Very, it's an important point, um, but it also doesn't diminish what Putin is doing. Right, yeah. right. And certainly it's the case that, you know, a bunch of white Ukrainian refugees are being treated very warmly. But I also would would argue that early on in the Syrian refugee crisis, the Afghan refugee crisis, people were incredibly welcoming in places like Greece and other places. And obviously that sentiment changed over time and I'm not getting into why, but you know, yeah, to, what I hope is that I think the point you're making is like solidarity is good for the time being and let's. And the only, I, I kind of walked up to making this point before, but like the one of the, you, there's no question that 
that racial and ethnic implicit racial attitudes are informing to some extent this reaction. I think the other thing, it is also the case that Europe, if if Ukraine is, say, like going to be in the EU, like there's there's a sense of a collective political identity. But I think the other point is that wars in Europe have become world wars, you know? Yep. Um, and, and so I think some of the unease that, that is not about race, um, and this goes beyond the refugee question, is like the entire international system was yeah. built to prevent wars in Europe. Right, it's just memory. Like that's what the UN yeah. is about. That's what the EU is about. That's what NATO is about. Um, and the fact that there's now a major war in Europe, the likes that we haven't seen since World War II, I mean, the Balkans, the Balkans kind of a different type of situation. The the part of that that's not about race and ethnicity is the part that's about like European wars can and can and can drag in the entire world. Yeah, you know? and go for a long time. Yeah. Um, last thing, and we talked about this a little bit on, on Positive America Monday, it's just for the media narrative we're seeing in the U.S., um, there's a lot of calls for escalation. I worry about what this could look like in a week or two. There's some loose talk about no-fly zones. Luckily, I think today, as opposed to the Syrian context, you do have people at Vox and other places coming out and being like, this is what a no-fly zone would be. This is why it's actually a declaration of war. Like, let's be smart about this. But, you know, I heard someone on a Sunday show on Meet the Press say, we need another Charlie Wilson's war, which is a reference to the U.S. arming the Mujahideen in yeah, Afghanistan. Didn't end too well. It didn't end very well. Hillary Clinton make the same case. Um, you know, the Richard Engel tweet that, you know, suggested that like either the U.S. and NATO blows up a Russian convoy or we're, quote, staying silent. Uh, how are you feeling so far about like the conversation around this and the possible risk of it creating incentives to do more, to be more militant, to send like uh, just to increase our involvement? So the no-fly zone is the, the most, you know, over the top one because, you know, as you you know, to spend a lot of time on it. I mean, that would involve America bombing Russian forces because mm-hmm. you can't set up a no-fly zone without destroying air defense systems and surface air missiles and things like that. It's not just flying planes in the air. No. Um, so that's war with a nuclear-armed country, and that's not, like, good. Um, I think that, in general, part of what's going to be difficult is they're going to run out of options. You know, I mentioned energy sanctions is, like, the last sanction. Um the calls to do something are going to be sustained even when the options of things to do are going to be somewhat exhausted, which is when you start getting calls for, you know, uh, offensive cyber attacks on Russia or yep. or what have you. And I do think we just need, and Biden, I think, has been good about, you know, defining what we won't do as well as talking about what we will do. But I think you could see cynical Republican politicians um, or even some Democrats, you know, taking the easy route. I've been in government myself of like demanding that you do things that they don't want to have to take responsibility for themselves, but it's a talking point for them. And it mm-hmm. kind of creates, uh, it just kind of warps the discourse a little bit. I think the arming question is a, is a tricky one um, because like w- it's not actually totally analogous, at least at this point, to say Afghanistan or Syria in that there is a sovereign government with a military right, an army, yeah. asking for more stuff for their military. That is that is qualitatively different from like a, 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 a burgeoning insurgency asking for arms. Now, what happens if that military and that government no longer exists? And we're not there right now. I mean, but it's also going to get harder to provide even now. Like you wonder how, how are these weapons getting to them? Um, you know, so that that's coming down the pike too, um, potentially. Uh, but um, 
you know, for now, I think we are supporting a, a sovereign military requesting assistance to defend their territory. And, and, and that, that should be seen as distinct from, you know, arming an insurgency. But we may get to that point. And, and when, if and when we get to that point, what you're going to have to weigh is, am I prolonging and adding to human suffering? Am I adding uh, variables? Who are, who are the people? Like who, is it a government? Is it, or is it just people in the streets? I mean, right. we don't know what this is going to look like yet. So before we start promising to do that or start ruling that out, I think we just have to see what, what is the what here. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you'll hear my interview uh, with a young woman from Ukraine, 29-year-old woman, who just recently made the three-day journey from Odessa, which is a, a town near Crimea, actually, all the way to Istanbul, Turkey, and is now one of the many refugees. So stick around for that. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. I am really grateful to talk with Ksenia Putiatina today. She's a 29-year-old from Odessa, Ukraine, who is now in Istanbul, obviously, because Vladimir Putin has decided to launch this psychotic invasion into Ukraine. So, Ksenia, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. So, as I mentioned at the top, you know, you're from Odessa. Uh, you're in Istanbul now. Can you tell us how you got there and how you how you decided to leave? Um, so, me, along with thousands of Ukrainians at some point realized that um, it's wise to seek safety abroad. So there are several like points on the border of Ukraine where you can um, leave the country. So I'm from Odessa, so the nearest border is the border with Moldova. Uh, so it took us a number of hours to get over there. So me specifically, I spent nine hours uh, in the traffic jam leading to the border. Some of my friends spent up to 30 hours on the border. Wow. Yeah. 30 so, hours. Yeah. It's, it's crazy over there for days. People trying to, you know, leave the country. So massive traffic jams. Uh, but yeah. So do you just, do you just sit in your car for 30 hours? Are there, is there infrastructure? Is it, it's cold out, I imagine. Uh, yeah. So uh, my friends gave me a lift. So yeah, we spend those hours in the car. Uh, so there is infrastructure when you reach the border. So there is like a net where they provide hot food, drinks, uh, clothes, like even toys for children this the, hmm. all this stuff is coming from Moldovan volunteers so people like yeah. bringing tons and tons of stuff to the border like when we were there like every five minutes there is a van arriving with like boxes filled up with everything that uh people might need but before you reach the border there is nothing there is you know just the road and you just wait and hope for the best uh, so yeah, at some point, like there is this thing that uh, at the moment, Ukrainian men 
between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country because they're expected to join the, the armed forces. Uh, so uh, the thing was that I was traveling with my friend and her partner. And at some point we realized that he, he will not be able to make it through. And my friend, she didn't want to leave her partner. That's why we decided mm. that I'm going to like leave the car and just continue on foot towards the board. And then they would turn and go back home because there was no hope for the guy to, you know, make it, make it through the border. So yeah, uh, after nine hours, I left the car and I walked there and basically then I met some of my friends on the border and we crossed it on foot. Obviously it took us about five hours. It was freezing outside. Everything was moving slowly, but yeah, like I said, there was like, an incredible support from Moldovan volunteers and Moldovan government who tried their best uh, to keep us, you know, warm and nourished and everything like that. And yeah. once we crossed the border, we were met by um, Moldovan volunteers who were ready to provide free accommodation, free rides anywhere in Moldova. Even if you need to go to Romania, they were ready to take you there. Uh, they offered shelter, they offered, offered steam cards, internet, charges, like whatever you need, I, even like uh, legal counseling or, yeah, so that was like an incredible experience of so many people genuinely trying their best, giving everything they can just to, you know, support us and give us uh, some relief. God, there, there is something um, completely overwhelming about stories of people being that kind to total strangers you know it's just sort of like it, it moves you um so like i mean this choice that you just had to make which look i i i hope i pray uh that you will you'll get to go back soon yeah but that you know you're making this choice whether you stay in a war zone or you leave your home maybe forever like it's unimaginable to to me to a lot of people like how do you how do you begin to decide For me, it wasn't much of like a decision process. So obviously we were getting that disturbing information for months that something was cooking up on the border. Uh, some Putin was making certain moves, military moves. So some people took that threat seriously, like me, and we were like planning escape plans. Uh, some people took it lightheartedly. They never believed something like that could, could happen. Uh, but yeah, me and some of my friends, we were kind of discussing that and realizing that if things really get bad and if our army doesn't succeed, our city is going to turn like in a quasi-state, like something that's happening, you know, to the um, Donbass area where there is the mm -hmm. minimum infrastructure no opportunities for you know a proper job development but also mm -hmm. most importantly you would be expected to follow a certain ideology right 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 and personally for me it wasn't for i i wasn't worried for my life or safety in terms of physical safety i just knew that if things go bad i wouldn't be able to exist under that government and exist yeah. in, in that political reality 
because yeah. it doesn't agree with me because many people would actually prefer to, you know, just surrender peacefully and, you know, to have their lives intact and like, just do whatever. But for me, the the change of the system would be something that I wouldn't tolerate. So yeah, yeah. yeah if you if you understand what I mean, yeah. So it wasn't like immediate danger that scared me, physical danger. No, it was the idea that I might need to, you know, live in a completely different political reality. Yeah, that the long term prospect of a sort of quasi Russian propped Whatever. up government. I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned that you took the threat very seriously. You made these plans. Others didn't. Like, I, I would never criticize anyone for, for, for not wanting to internalize the, this horrible situation that you're now in. But I do wonder if, you know, President Zelensky has been so brave and so inspiring and so out on the front lines. But they're also, you know, he was one of the people I think who was saying, "Oh, this isn't going to happen," pushing back. And I meant, I imagine a part of that was rhetorical posturing. But I, I wonder if there are some folks who are frustrated and think. I wish the government had made maybe more evacuation plans for women and children earlier. Is that part of the discussion? They couldn't do it. You know, they need to, well, panic is the worst in, in current circumstances. So right. at this point, I'm convinced that they were preparing internally. So yeah. they were enforcing the, uh, the, the armed forces, you know, they were making sure they're like you know they making they're taking everything like in order um but yeah they couldn't just tell this to the population it's 40 million right. people you can't just appear on tv and tell 40 million people that yeah you're expected to get bombed in a, in, in a week right so yeah. i certainly understand where he couldn't make it public but i'm i'm convinced that he and his team did everything they could to prepare themselves for what's coming. And we see, yeah. and like, it, it's not like my only, you know, like, it's not like I want to believe in it. I see it. No one expected Ukrainian army to defend so effectively. Like, the, the things that I saw online, like, you know, those Russian supporters, they were like, well, yeah, like Ukraine doesn't really have an army. Like they will take Kiev in one day, right? So we see that everyone was surprised how our soldiers fought. That there was like, it, it, it it's a, it's a good fight. It's a decent fight. Yeah. So just yeah. based on it, that, I can tell that for sure they were preparing, even though they yeah. they, they couldn't you know disclose that to the population, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it is staggering bravery from the the Ukrainian armed forces. They have it, it's, I mean, it's it's awe inspiring what they've done. I mean, you 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 know, Odessa is a port city. It's off the Black Sea. It's relatively close to Crimea, which Putin invaded back in 2014. Yep. I imagine that incident like led to a lot of the preparations, which has made the Ukrainian response yep. so effective now. But did that earlier, you know, illegal action by the Russians, did that change your life in any way from 2014 to today? Uh, yes, a lot. So the thing is that the war didn't start on Thursday. The war has been ongoing for eight years. Yeah. We were lucky enough to not experience it firsthand just because, um, you know, there were, there were some, yeah, 
there was some commotion in Odessa, for sure. There were Russian saboteurs trying, you know, to cause uh, a coup, overthrow uh, local government. But back in 2014, it didn't happen. But of course, Odessa has been always like one of the primary primary interests for Putin, just because. Well, it's a the the majority of population is Russian speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, because it's an important port, so strategically important place. But I think like Russians and Putin's uh, crew, they think of Odessa as a traditionally Russian city. So everyone knew that, and back in 2014, we were sure we were next. We were sure it wouldn't stop with Crimea. It was obvious that Putin would want to integrate the entire, you know, southeast part of Ukraine because they're just convinced that that's historically Russian lands, and we as Ukrainians we don't exist as a nation. So, yeah, the the fear has always been there that uh, yeah he would not stop with Crimea. So 2014. It changed a lot, and yeah. we were never, you know, at peace since then. Yeah, um, I understand that. You know, some of your family, a lot of your friends, have decided to stay or were forced to stay because they were male. Uh, are you able to talk with them? Like, how are people doing? What What are you hearing? Um, so yeah, I have like lots of reports from different parts of Ukraine. So obviously, most of my friends and family are in Odessa, which is relatively calm. At the moment, but things can get ugly really, you know, really fast. So, like, there is also no peace or relief in, in the term that Odessa is relatively peaceful. Like, we, yeah, we expect the worst to to come, you know. Uh, but yeah, I've been in touch with my friends, so. Um, they're like in different situations. Many of them have already, you know, crossed the border and across Europe. Uh, some of them stayed. Uh, we also had we, we also have friends from Kiev who are reporting back uh, from there. Uh, so that, that, that there's a lot of uh, lot of information. But the main thing that we we are very supportive of each other. So we share the news. We, we express our frustration. We exchange memes, of course, because humor is it's extremely important part of you know getting through this. First, like first two or three days, no one could pull a joke, but then you know, over the time, we started you know like thinking more clearly. So then, that's where the humor comes in, you know, and then we can yeah kind of yeah laugh about it a little bit. Just you gotta laugh to a certain extent, yeah. That's all you can do. Um, before this happened, before this fucking lunatic tyrant on your border invaded, like what was a normal day like? What did you guys do for fun? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what's the normal life? Like Odessa is is on the seaside. So of course, lots of our activities are connected to, you know, beach activities. Nice. Walk, walks, beach parties. Like I, like for me, living close to a large body of water is essential like it's, yeah it's me too it's, it's part of my identity so i couldn't imagine not being like you know 
So that's partially why I'm in Istanbul. There is Bosphorus, you know, so that's like helping me a lot. Uh, but yeah, I guess like our normal life wouldn't be any different from like, you know, American or European life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just look for what it's worth. I want you to know that I think probably everybody listening, myself included, is just like so inspired by the dignity and the courage of the Ukrainian people. It's, it's, it's overwhelming to watch. Um, and it feels so small to say that and to feel that from here, but I just want you to know it. And I just wondered if you had any message back to people listening that you want them to hear ways they can help, like something folks should know just to kind of close out the conversation. So I think if I would, the only thing I would want from people abroad, if they hear an opinion, an opinion that this war is somewhat justified, right? So, uh, fight them <laughs> because like fight them verbally you know there is so many open sources where you can get the information both from inside of ukraine and outside um, mm -hmm. so don't just let it slide people saying that okay but maybe the west caused it you know it's all nato's fault or ukraine is just you know in the middle between them, this massive fights between the empires like the US and, and Russia. It's bullshit. There is a, a, a will of an insane man who decided to become the greatest, you know, emperor of the world. He wants to, you know, to, to be remembered as the greatest person in history. He wants to be the new Napoleon or whatever. So that's his ill will that's causing everything. And Ukrainians do appreciate all the support, however small it is, even if it's just a post online, even if it's some of our foreign friends checking on us, you know, everything is important. It's important to be heard and seen. And so that's what's been keeping us alive, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a really good friend here in LA from Georgia, the the country, not the state who, you know, had the same, same reaction you did, which was like, of course he was going to do this. He's a monster because he's wanted to do this. The same to Georgia in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And well, yeah, you know, maybe the only Napoleon comparisons that might uh, come are uh, to do with their shared height, but I think it's far more likely that Putin will be remembered as uh, more resembling Hitler than, um, than anybody else because he's acting like a you know a madman and a sociopath and i think the entire world is standing with ukraine we will all i promise you we will on this show or everywhere else fight back against these made-up narratives that you know he's saving ukraine from nazis or whatever but i do think from the outside perspective zero people believe him no one believes him but the russians actually do and it's ridiculous yeah. because i'm the most liberal person and i'm very pro-ukrainian and there is no nazis <laughs> yeah seems like normal people who go to the beach yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a lot of nazis so this whole narrative is just ridiculous and like it's difficult to comprehend that millions and millions of people in russia but not only russia believe this narrative and are like truly saying to ukrainians that's your own fault for open your door for, for to, to, to NATO, to the West, to EU, 
it's just yeah it's something that i will never be able to truly comprehend like you know that people they want to seem smart they think they're being smart with throwing uh, this like yeah it's geopolitics it's cold war yeah ukraine is just in the yeah. middle but it all comes down to one person who decided yeah to, you know uh to gather all the lands and introduce soviet union 2.0 that's it yeah yeah that's right i mean i, I totally agree and, and last i lied last last question i mean there is this uh, it, this older generation that i think is sort of used to russian aggression has seen it before and there so many of them have decided to to stay and fight i mean wh what why do you think that is what do you think that bravery comes from uh, so one interesting thing that even people who used to be quite pro-russian and used to be skeptical towards like ukraine and you know all our uh, aspirations now they've changed their minds just because hmm. when you're being bombed when there is troops entering your country and shutting shot civilians it becomes very clear that who's the, who's the enemy you know so many people change their opinions a, a lot about that and it's quite important but yeah it, it all comes down to you know defending your home defending your family defending your beliefs defending the way of life so it's only natural that so many people are brave enough to pick up arms even though they've never you know held them in their entire lives yeah yeah, well, it's incredibly brave and incredibly inspiring. And uh, Ksenia, thank you so much for for taking some time to talk with us today. I hope we can stay in touch. Uh, we'll be thinking about you, I am sure, every day after this. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your time, too. Thanks again to Ksenia Putiatina for joining the show. Uh, ben, thank you for the several books you gave me um, uh, that I actually read two of them. I read Silverview. Yeah, Lucare. Yeah, late Lucare. Behind the Beautiful Forevers. Really, one of the. I, mean, I, I can't remember the last time I picked up a book, and when I put it down, I'd read two hundred pages that day. Yeah, and it and in terms of like just sort of like giving one perspective on challenges you face in your own yeah. life versus global suffering and inequity and things others are going to. It's about it, it's this incredible author Catherine Boo, I believe. Yeah, who basically you know, chronicles the lives of these young, mostly women and kids in slums in near Mumbai, yeah. near an airport for several years. Yeah. And it's just astounding. Yeah. And I, I, it might, it might strike one as a strange book to have given you at a, a time of immense personal tragedy, but as, as sad as elements of the story are, cause she's detailing just the most extreme inequality imaginable. There was something weirdly, really affirming about that book, um, the, the the resilience of those people and the, the way in, ways in which they cared for each other, even as stuff was going on around them. I mean, it, that book's not, uh, every now and then you read a book that's not like any other book you've ever read, and then yeah. that's how that book struck me. Yeah, yeah. You know what else I read? Um, had some free time. Uh, I read uh, A Perfect Spy. I'm at like, yeah, my, yeah. my Kindle says 99%. I have one chapter left, and I just like couldn't keep my eyes open last night. It is... Um, you know how like a lot of Lucare books, they start with like 50 to 100 pages. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And then it ties it together. And the, at the end, it delivers the, the payoff. Yeah. 
this one is like 200 pages yeah. of you just being like, what the fuck is yeah. happening? Yeah. But ultimately, you get to a very um, incredible place. It's a good time to go back to Le Carre. I mean, you know, Cold War, moral ambiguity, yeah. you know. Total moral ambiguity, yeah. Cold War. And also, like, as he went with the books, you know, the, the last one, Silverview, um, he's talking about Gaza. Yeah. And, you know, sort of like he doesn't he, he shy from yeah. tough things. Yeah. I should say, because uh, people have been asking me on social media, um, uh, last I've heard, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tanya Kozreva is is fine, is okay. The journalist we had on, um, Christopher Miller reporting from Kiev. So we'll keep in touch with these people that I know have both been incredible sources of information, but also like listeners, you know, are wondering, yeah. are they okay? Man, so, it was, yeah. that was scary seeing yeah. her after like, yeah. can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. Um, okay. Uh, good to be back. Thanks again. And uh, talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com.